The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg, sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. President Trump was sent here to smash conventional norms. In a sense, Bernie Sanders has already won. This is Bloomberg, sound on with Kevin Cirillo. On Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Greg Story in for Kevin Cirilli. The impeachment trial is underway in the Senate with counsel from both sides making opening statements. For the White House, Attorney Jay Sekulow accused the House of trying to have President Trump removed from office simply because they dislike him. Why are we here? Are we here because of a phone call? Or are we here before this great body? Because since the president was sworn into office, there was a desire to see him removed. With me here in the Bloomberg 99.1 studio, Rick Davis, a Bloomberg contributor and former national campaign manager for John McCain's presidential campaign in 2000 and 2008, and Bloomberg News' Washington bureau chief, Craig Gordon. Thanks to both of you for being here. Um, Craig, let me start with you. Give us the, the, the day's headline for people who weren't glued to their TVs today. What, what did they miss? Oh, there wasn't much of a headline today. They did, uh, the, the Republicans did allow the uh, changes to be made to the scheduling that McConnell had asked for. He wanted a very aggressive schedule, two, 24 hour, two days it would be sort of 12 hours apiece, 24 hours over two days. Even the Republicans in the Senate didn't much care for that idea and sort of shot that down. They also did introduce the documents from sort of the House, you know, inquiry have already been now introduced into the record of the Senate. So these are pretty small procedural items, frankly, but they are they are giving a sense that at least the Senate is open to trying to make the process a little more amenable um, for themselves, frankly. But as far as headlines today, there was a, a lot of sound, not much light, pretty procedural. Rick, uh, we did hear, if not the opening statements, we heard some snippets of uh, things we're going to hear a lot over the next few days. And White House Counsel Patrick uh, Cipollone uh, said that Donald Trump has done absolutely nothing wrong. He called the impeachment articles ridiculous. Um, it is the kind of scorched earth defense we've been hearing. Um, how do you think that sort of uh, big defense is going to go over in this trial? You know, look, I mean, I think it's always been the administration's point of view on virtually any controversy to stonewall, right? It's sort of standard operating procedure for them, and this is no exception. So I, I would anticipate that they will never blink. Uh, the, the, the lawyers for Donald Trump will take a very hard-line approach that this is completely unwarranted. It's trying to remove a duly elected president from office in an extraordinary fashion, and that uh, it's a waste of time for the United States Senate. I think on the Democratic side, you're going to hear a lot about we need witnesses, we want more evidence. Uh, they're, they're going to have a completely different narrative. And I think what we saw when this opened up today and the message from Leader McConnell versus the message from Senator Schumer was we really don't care what each other's are doing. We've got our own agenda. We're going to execute our agenda. 
in the process of that happening, there'll be an impeachment trial, but the, the two will not likely intersect in any positive fashion. Craig, one of the themes that we, we have going on here is Republicans trying to get this over quickly, Democrats uh, wanting a more, uh, let's say, thorough process. A and those changes from Mitch McConnell that you mentioned included originally these opening statements were going to happen over the course of three days or two days, excuse me, and potentially go to like one o'clock in the morning. And now they're going to be three days and presumably not uh, go quite so late. What do you make of that? Is that um, you know, a sign that, that Mitch McConnell had to, to give in on something important? Yeah, I think McConnell is trying to ram this through pretty quickly. Um, I think a lot of GOP senators are, would be fine with that. But, you know, sort of within limits, this literally had the potential to keep senators there in their seats until 1 in the morning. And I'm sure people have been following some of the rules. They can't have food. They can have milk or water. Yes, we're allowed to have milk, too. Uh, but no cell phones, no contact with the outside world, basically. And I'm sorry, that's a pretty long day, especially for some of our senators who are, uh, uh, shall we say, getting up there. But I I'm kind of with Rick on this. Both sides are going to kind of talk past each other. They're going to, you know, sort of talk at each other. Trump side saying he did nothing wrong. Democrats saying, you know, it's the end of the republic. I, I think what's interesting to me is the public is pretty much the same way. If you like Donald Trump, you think this is a sham. And if you don't like Donald Trump, they, you think they should run him out of town. I'm not sure how many minds are going to get changed, whether it's two days, three days, four days, a week, a year. It doesn't much matter. The country seems very dug in on this topic with a very slight majority saying, you know, we should think about uh, removing Trump from office. But certainly no, you know, no sort of hue and cry that, that that's what's going to happen. And I think most of the public has sort of figured out the joke. There is that we know the ending. We know there's no spoiler alert here. Donald Trump will get acquitted. He will he will walk. He will remain the president when this process is over. So I think it's a little bit hard for even the public to get excited about this. And just to clarify, you did say water and milk, right? That's an milk, actual, that's an actual water Senate and rule. milk. They're allowed to have milk. Well, and considering I, the average age of the United States senator, milk, <laughs> warm, warm milk warm I think is milk. allowed. Yeah, yes. Exactly. <laughs> Rick, one area where perhaps there will be a little bit of drama is whether or not there will be witnesses called. Um, there's a new CNN poll that's out that's, that has 69% of the public saying the trial should include testimony from new witnesses. Um, that's a pretty big number in these divided times. I, is this an issue on which Democrats have the upper hand? You know, it's part of this negotiation of the process that Craig refers to. Um, uh, one of the things that, that caught, I think, McConnell a little bit by surprise, he, he wanted to cloak himself into saying, hey, I'm doing this exactly the same way we did it for Clinton. And that was his safety valve. The problem is he, he forgot that, that Clinton's uh, allocation of days were 12 hours of debate, 24 hours of debate uh, for each side, and he, they did it over three years. So even before the first session was ended today, he'd already caved on like, okay, forget I said two days. We're going to make it three days so that I really can say that this is just like the Clinton trial. The Clinton trial allowed witnesses only after the, the, the cases had been brought up. And so that will be an opportunity for Republicans to split from leadership and say, you know what, we want to meet the demands of this almost 70 percent of the public that says we want to learn more in the process of this. And and, and there I can see an amendment being a close vote on whether or not you allow new people, especially people like John Bolton, who says, I've got something to tell you. And perhaps we could have a vote on whether or not these are what we see from these these witnesses, right? Whether we get videotaped ex, ex, excerpts, just transcripts, that sort of thing, right? Yep. 
Um, I want to ask you both in a, m- a minute or so. You know, this is such a divided time, uh, it, it, and we're so used to these partisan divides here. And, and this event, of course, is something that has only happened three times in the country's history, the impeachment of a president, a, a trial. Um, does today feel any different to you, or is it just the continuation of what we've been experiencing for the last three years? Craig? Uh, I, I have to say I, it, it is – it's a very busy time right now. Obviously, we have uh, the Iowa caucuses less than a month away of the Democratic presidential primary. You've got still some tension with Iran lurking out there. North Korea rolled up today and said they're they're going to you know potentially start firing off ballistic missiles. Oh, and we're also impeaching the president. <laughs> yeah. by, you know, in other news, um, it it has been sometimes a little hard to kind of recognize the sort of the gravity of it. There is not there are not thunderclaps and lightning bolts. Um, surrounding these events. Now, today's, you know, today was very procedural. There were these votes and, you know, et cetera. But yeah, I, I have to say, I think that's one of the Democrats' problems. It's hard for, it's hard for people to get excited because I said earlier, we kind of know how the movie ends. Rick, can you give me the 10-second answer? Yeah. I mean, the, the first time we had an impeachment was right uh, during and after the Civil War. Talk about a time when the country was split. Um, uh, Bill Clinton, I think, is the asterisk. This is, this is next to the, 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 uh, the war between the North and the South, the worst time we've seen in history. In a minute, we'll talk about how all this plays politically. I'm Greg Storer. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Greg Storer in for Kevin Cirilli. Still with me here is Rick Davis, Bloomberg contributor and former uh, two-time national campaign manager for John McCain, and Craig Gordon, Bloomberg's Washington bureau chief. Even as his Senate impeachment trial is set to get underway, President Donald Trump touts his economic success while at the World Economic Forum in Davos on Tuesday. He said that the U.S. has regained its edge against other nations in areas like trade, job creation, and energy. When I spoke at this forum two years ago, I told you that we had launched the great American comeback. Today, I'm proud to declare that the United States is in the midst of an economic boom, the likes of which the world has never seen before. Rick Davis, we were uh, talking earlier about all the other things going on in addition to impeachment. Um, the, the broad expectation is that President Trump will not be convicted. He will stay in office, finish out his term. With all that being said, presidential election coming up, what is the game here? What are Democrats, uh, to take it from that perspective, uh, hoping, trying to accomplish here? Well, I do think there's an element of uh, trying to change the narrative. Uh, Trump's just had a big success signing a trade deal with China that he said he was going to bring China to their knees, and arguably uh, he, can, he can declare some success. And the ratification, even in the midst of all this impeachment of the uh, USMCA, the trade deal between Canada and U.S., is quite a feather in his cap. I mean, he's going to have a signing ceremony while impeachment is going on, showing the American public that he's out there doing the hard work of the presidency. And, and you load on top of that low unemployment, heavy investment rates, uh, great stock market records. And, uh, and he's got a story to tell that, um, that doesn't include impeachment. Uh, so I think the fact that the Democrats have made a huge gambit on saying, we want to start this year, an election year, talking about impeachment, means they have confidence that somehow this is going to inure to their benefit. Um, uh, sure, 
they're going to tell you, oh, we're doing this because it's the right thing to do and the country needs to have, you know, this, this, this catharsis because otherwise, gosh, this guy will be uncontrolled in the remainder of his presidency. But the reality is this is all about elections. And there is an election in 10 months. And regardless of what happens with impeachment, uh, there's going to be an up or down vote on Donald Trump. And, and Democrats, I think, believe that somehow this is going to help them. Uh, I think the jury's out just like it is on impeachment. Craig, when all this is said and done in a few weeks, month, whatever it is, how would one define success for Democrats here? Is it winning over a few uh, Republican votes? Is it um, getting John Bolton up there and, and saying embarrassing things about the president? What, what, how would you define success? The Democratic strategy in, involves trying to get no Republican votes. The expectation is that if you vote for Donald Trump in 2016 and you're still going to vote for him in 2020, you're dug in, you're you're dug in deep and you're going you're either going up with the ship or down with the ship. This is all aimed at those moderates in the middle. And again, it's we talk about it every cycle. Rick can talk about it better than I can even. But, you know, there are those I think it's people think there's maybe 10 or 15 percent people kind of in the middle who were like, eh, you know, 2016, I, I don't much care for Hillary. Trump kind of like to cut a Trump's jib. I love that guy from The Apprentice. He seems like a real decisive guy. I'm going to roll the dice and take my chances. You know, three years in, they're like, oh, my gosh, what have I done? Um, they don't. Well, you talk to Democrats and when they do focus groups, people say uh, they talk about the tweets like oh, I don't really like the tweets, which has become kind of a substitute for like, I don't really like his style. Like he's kind of obnoxious and he's not very nice to people. And, he, you know, whatever. So I think I mean, it's kind of I don't want to sound so cynical, but a lot of this impeachment is aimed at maybe that 10 percent, 15 percent, 20 percent on the way outside that Democrats think are persuadable, you know, former Trump voters or people who at least took a, took a walk on the Trump side of the street and maybe could come over to the Democrats and really want to dirty up Trump as best they can. Uh, you know, he was uh, he was shady in the way he dealt with the Ukrainians and et cetera. I think it's a huge gamble. I think, you know, again, as we just talked about in the last segment, people are not exactly riveted by the impeachment yet, at least so far. And I think Democrats are putting a lot of chips on this particular square. It may work. It may not. But what they have, what Trump has is all the stuff Rick said, great economy, two or three good trade deals and, uh, and a real, uh, you know, tail in his back. Yeah, I, I would say just to add to that is that part of the play for the Democrats is defensive, right? I mean, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, did not want to do impeachment. And it was the left wing of her party that forced her into it. I mean, she resisted, resisted, and she finally caved in because the one thing they can't afford is a disenfranchised base, right? I mean, Hillary Clinton lost in states like Wisconsin because she underperformed what Barack Obama got there. By In this case, in 2016, she got 250,000 fewer votes than Barack Obama did. Donald Trump got 20,000 fewer votes than Mitt Romney did, but was able to beat Hillary Clinton in that state because she didn't turn out her base. So a lot of the Democratic strategy is fire up that base, make sure they're happy. If they deliver at the scale that they did for Obama, it's very hard to see a scenario where Donald Trump wins. Craig, this, of course, is going on right as we're approaching the first presidential primary in Iowa. Uh, is there a, an easy way to describe what impact it's going to have uh, on on the primary, especially with some of the leading candidates, not all of them, but some of them uh, here in Washington sitting quietly in their seats drinking milk? Yeah, sort of at a tactical level. It's a great day if you're Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg because you're not a member of the United States Senate, and so you're free to move to Iowa for the next two weeks and and set up shop um, for the senators running, obviously, Sanders and Warren, Klobuchar, 
Apparently, Michael Bennett is still running for president, someone told me today. So I guess there's four senators. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously trickier. I do think on the more on the strategic level, though, this is kind of baked into the cake for Democratic primary voters in Iowa. You don't really hear the candidates talk that much about it. It's kind of understood if you're a Democratic primary voter. It's like accepted that you don't much care for Donald Trump, whether he's being impeached or not impeached or convicted or acquitted. It's all it's sort of like the backdrop against which the whole campaign is being run. So the, the rallies I attended when I was in Iowa, the people I've talked to, it just doesn't come up that much, but I do think it's on the front of the minds of primary voters in one important way, which is we need to find a candidate that can beat Donald Trump. That's really good news for Joe Biden, less good news for some of the others, but that is really the, the sort of the driving force behind the caucuses and the primaries that are to come. Rick, uh, in about 30 seconds, if you can, um, we get to November where does impeachment and Ukraine, where do those rank on the panoply of, of issues that voters are going to think about when they well, cast I think a vote? On, on impeachment, I mean, we blow through issues so quickly nowadays because of the mass media and how quickly we cycle through things that I, I would be surprised if impeachment actually carries much weight in November. I, I would say, though, that, that the Ukraine scandal will continue on, right, even though impeachment will end in a couple of weeks. They'll still be reporting about these crazy deals that were trying to be struck and what was happening. So I wouldn't be surprised if Ukraine has a doesn't have the reporting on it doesn't have a bigger impact than the impeachment itself. Okay, my thanks to Rick Davis, former John McCain national campaign manager and Bloomberg contributor and Craig Gordon, Bloomberg's Washington bureau chief. Coming up, we'll talk about some of the legal issues in the impeachment battle. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg business app. I'm Greg Store. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Greg Storr in for Kevin Cirilli. White House lawyer Pat Cipollone today told the Senate the president does not deserve to be removed from office. We believe that once you hear those initial presentations, the only conclusion will be that the president has done absolutely nothing wrong. Impeachment, of course, is a big political event, but it's also a legal event. And to talk through some of the biggest legal issues, we have two guests. Kent Greenfield is a professor of law at Boston College Law School, and Josh Blackman, professor of law at South Texas College of Law. Welcome to you both. Um, let's start with something big. Let's start with the, the Trump administration argument that says, even if I did everything that I'm accused of doing, I can't be convicted because it's not a crime. He says impeachment is only for things that are crimes. Kent Greenfield, do you agree with that argument? I don't. Uh, let me start by saying hello to my friend Josh. Um, and uh, and also, it's, it's, it's good to hear uh, Pat Cipollone's voice. I haven't. Uh, he, he and I were at, in, at law school together, so I guess it's a small world. I, I don't agree with uh, with Pat Cipollone's arguments, and, and I, I take it to be Alan Dershowitz's, Dershowitz's argument as well that 
that in order to be impeachable, uh, it has to be an underlying crime. And I, I think this is one of those situations where, where the, um, the, the text of the Constitution, where it says high crimes and misdemeanors, you have to read it in the light and of the, of the, of, of this meaning at the time, which was the, and with the high crimes and misdemeanors meant, um, abuse of the office, of the, of, of the high office. It did not in, uh, mean, to, it was not intended to be limited to uh, the, uh, something that was criminal. And in fact, we've got a lot of precedents for that, like the, the, uh, the, the two of the articles of impeachment against Nixon uh, back in the day did not have an underlying criminal uh, conduct. Most of the articles of impeachment against Andrew Johnson back in the 19th century were, uh, did not have a criminal component. And in fact, a, a number of impeachment of judges, most impeachments that have gone through the, the House and then um, been tried by the Senate have been of judges, and a good number of them have, have featured behavior like drunkenness that, that are not criminal in and of themselves, but, but were the basis for an, uh, an impeachment and then removal from, from office. Josh Blackman, do you agree with that? And um, if you do, then what is the standard? How do we know when uh, something the president does is, is enough to warrant being thrown out of office? Well, also, it's a pleasure to be here with my good friend Kent. Um, I think I largely agree with what he said. Um, <clears throat> at the time of the framing, when the Constitution was first ratified, there were virtually no federal crimes. Uh, we had a blank statute book. I don't think it's reasonable to assume that the only way to be uh, impeached was if Congress had started to create new criminal statutes. I think that the uh, framers understood that there there are certain offenses that could rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors um, that are not uh, 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 that they're not themselves violations of the law. Um, I think I'll part company ever so slightly in where I draw that line. Um, the House Democrats have asserted that President Trump has violated the Constitution because he uh, uh, took this action, he made the request to the Ukrainian president, um, and he did so uh, for his personal political benefit. Um, I take the position, which is perhaps not very popular nowadays, that politicians routinely do things for their political benefit, and they look at the ballot box when they act, and they look at the polls when they act. And I think it's um, permissible, but perhaps problematic, to define impeachable abuse of power at this level. I think there are lots of actions presidents take that are uh, perhaps foolish and perhaps things I disagree with, but uh, are within the bounds of, uh, uh, of politics and should be punished politically at the ballot box. Kent, uh, is there a way to distinguish what Donald Trump is accused of doing here from those other foolish things that Josh is talking about? Yeah, I do. And I think that, no, I wish that that the the president's defenders in in the Senate were as honest as Josh about what's what their argument really is, uh, but they're not. Um, but I, I think the the in my view, Trump's behavior in this situation is at the core of what impeachment was intended to remedy. It's the uh, the the faithlessness of a president to to pervert our own uh, national interest in order to further his own. Uh, selfish political or financial interests, which is at which is, I think the the core of the the kinds of abuses of power that ought to be the the basis for uh, impeachment and removal. The the the, 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 
the word faithful, or a derivation of the, of the word faithful, appears twice in, in the Constitution, once in the oath of, uh, the, of the office of the presidency. I will, um, I, you know, I, I do solemnly swear to faithfully execute the, the office of the presidency of the United States. And also in the take care clause, the president has the obligation to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. So in my view, I've been, become convinced that, that faithfulness is the, at the core of presidential obligation, and that, um, that a, which means that the president should act as if he has a fiduciary duty to the country. And what that means is that he has to um, act um, in the interest of the company, in the country, not, I say company, because it's sort of like the fiduciary duty that a corporate executive has to a company. Um, but the, and that, and that faith, faithlessness is uh, the, the, the kind of abuse of power, as we've seen in this case, that, uh, that merits impeachment and removal. Josh, I want to jump to the subject of witnesses, since that seems to be uh, something that could be a, a, a source of at least some drama in the trial. Um, the president uh, has made the case that, or, or, uh, um, and Senate Republicans, Mitch McConnell, making the case that we don't really need witnesses here. Um, a lot of the people we're talking about, like John Bolton, Mick Mulvaney, are people whom the president blocked from testifying before the House uh, when it was considering uh, the articles of impeachment over there. There. Is there a good argument that the that the Republicans and the president can make for why we don't need any witnesses in this trial? Um, I think the the president's lawyers make a few different arguments. Um, they first argue that the entire impeachment proceedings are legitimate from the outset. That is, the subpoenas were issued before the full House had taken a vote, and therefore the president had no obligation to respond to impeachment subpoenas when the House hadn't approved the subpoena. Uh, so therefore, they argue that the entire um, uh, the, the entire process is sort of rotten to the core. Uh, but let's put that argument aside for a moment. Um, I think the argument that no witnesses are, are permissible is a common argument any defense attorney would make. Uh, witnesses put forward evidence that's damaging to their client, and they're going to fight the <laughs> availability of those witnesses. I mean, that that's the reason why they don't want witnesses. Any additional things that are said. Um, could only inert to the uh, detriment of Trump and not to the benefit. Um, so I think defense lawyers are going to make that position. I think the, the more p- important question is, w- would uh, senators oppose um, uh, the introduction of witnesses? And there's questions of whether they do it now or they do it later. And uh, I think some senators have more or less decided that the fact-finding role was a role for the House, not for the Senate. And if the, if the House failed to call witnesses, it shouldn't be the Senate's job to clean up. I think that's a non-trivial argument uh, that you should be limited to the record. But in the past, we've had uh, impeachments where the Senate has called witnesses. Um, I, I think ultimately we probably will get some witnesses, and maybe John Bolton's one of them, and uh, maybe good old Hunter uh, might get dragged in as well. Um, I don't think we'll learn very much. I think it'll be extremely unsatisfying once the witnesses testify. I think these, these exchanges will be prescripted. Most witnesses can be coached in effective manners, and I'm not expecting anything that will change the dynamics in any way. Kent, what's your take on that? Is it, is it important that we hear from witnesses? I, I, I do think so, because I think there's been some been some uh, expansion in, in what we what we know and what we suspect uh, occurred uh, since since the House wrapped up their inquiry. You know, and I think one of the things that we might see going forward is I think probably. Um, uh, Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, and, and the Democrats on the House side might keep um, this inquiry open, and e- either um, uh, in, in, in effect or, or uh, in fact. 
over the next um, few few months. If more um, knowledge comes out, you know, now that now we know that there's um, there's many more documents out there, many more um, pieces of information that we can gather. And and I I, I agree with Josh that I don't anticipate, you know, the, in, um, you know. John Bolton coming uh, and dropping a bombshell that would that would force twenty Republican senators to to vote to remove the president. But I do think Kent, it's- Kent we're going to afraid we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank you uh, for joining us here on Bloomberg Radio, uh, Josh. You're going to stick around. Coming up, we're going to talk about Chief Justice John Roberts, who's presiding uh, over this trial, and, and talk about how it might affect uh, the Supreme Court's workings while he's presiding over the the trial. I'm Greg Storr. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. I'm Greg Storr in for Kevin Cirilli. We're talking impeachment with Josh Blackman, law professor at South Texas College of Law, and now Jonathan Adler law professor at Case Western Reserve Law School. The public hasn't seen much of John Roberts since he testified at his Senate confirmation hearing in 2005. As Chief Justice, he has made relatively few public appearances, including the three times he administered the oath of office at a presidential inauguration. Jonathan Adler, welcome to uh, Sound On. Uh, You and Josh both follow the Supreme Court very closely. Today, I was watching the proceedings on TV, and you saw the person down there at the at the lectern, and you never saw John Roberts up above. What do you think he's thinking during all this? What do you think his attitude about this entire impeachment proceeding is? Well, I can imagine that there are plenty of other places he would rather be. Uh, I think you know he is generally very focused on the work of the court and trying to uh, take actions that he believes help maintain the court's legitimacy and being thrust into the middle of a very tribal and very partisan conflict like impeachment is certainly uh, not something that, that I think he would prefer to be doing. Josh, uh, how much of a presence do you think John Roberts will be during this this trial? Uh, is he more likely to kind of lie low and let the the members of Congress and the administration lawyers uh, run the show, or, or do you see him likely to make some significant decisions up there? Um, in the past, Chief Justice Roberts has commented on the State of the Union process, where the justices go to Congress and sit there like potted plants. I think his role will be greater than a potted plant, but not by much. Um, so far, all Roberts has done is administer oaths <clears throat> and allow the other parties to uh, make uh, 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 arguments and uh, uh, allowed some votes to be held. I can't imagine Chief Justice Roberts will actually make any substantive or significant rulings um, in the unlikely event that the vote ties, that is 50-50. Uh, I think there's an argument that Roberts may actually have to split the tie. I don't know that it'll come to that. I don't think McConnell would let it come to that. Uh, but I think it's unlikely that Roberts does anything of substance. He will sit there, smile, and let everyone else run the show around him. Chief Justice Rehnquist said about his impeachment duties, I did nothing at all, and he did it very well. I think Roberts will do much the same. 
Chief Justice Roberts, of course, was a uh, law clerk to, to Chief Justice Rehnquist, uh, not during the impeachment, but uh, in some ways has, has used the, the late Chief Justice as his model. Um, Jonathan, on that issue of breaking a tie, um, there is some debate as to whether if the Senate is split 50-50, John Roberts uh, could cast the deciding vote. Uh, do you think he'd want to cast the deciding vote, even if, even if he thinks he has the authority to do that? I don't. And uh, my guess is that uh, the way he will handle anything like that is if there is a motion uh, that is be- that is before the body, uh, my uh, suspicion is, is that his view will be is that for a motion to carry, it requires a majority of the body. And that means if there are not 51 votes, then the motion fails and he does not need to cast a vote uh, one way or the other. Um, certainly, if I was advising him, uh, Unless the parliamentarian told me otherwise, that's what I would advise him to do. And I think taking that sort of approach uh, would enable him to uh, not have to cast any any sort of vote uh, and instead leave control of the proceedings and even the procedural questions uh, to the Senate itself. Josh, the relationship between John Roberts and Donald Trump has been, um, well, perhaps we could say fraught. Certainly it's been interesting. Uh, Donald Trump's been, been critical of, of Roberts on, for a number of things, and uh, there was a, a, a moment a, a while back when Trump criticized a district judge who had ruled against him in a case and called him an Obama judge, and John Roberts put out a rather extraordinary statement saying we're not Obama judges or Trump judges. We're all just men and women trying to do our best to apply the law. (laughs) How, if at all, does that relationship with with Donald Trump uh, affect how John Roberts might handle this proceeding? Does it make him, um, you uh, you know, suspect in the eyes of some people up there? Well, you know, I'm not a John Roberts fan, and I think my colleague John Adler may agree with me at least some of the time. Uh, but I think Roberts is a fair judge. I think he honestly believes he's doing the right thing at all times, and he approaches this with the solemnity and uh, uh, dignity that the moment requires. I have no doubt he thinks low of uh, President Trump in a lot of regards and criticizes his statements publicly. None of that will matter. I think Roberts will handle this 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 proceeding as fairly as possible. And I think I think John said it right. There's there's it's unlikely Roberts will have to make a substantive ruling unless there's a bizarre fifty fifty tie in which he needs to cast a deciding vote. Uh, Roberts will basically just sit there and smile. I think that's about where he wants to be. Jonathan, let me let, let me sort of return to the issue of of whether he's a potted plant. Is there a way? I mean, John Roberts is. Uh, I would say, a, a unique figure in the country right now where, um, although a lot of people are critical of him, uh, he at least holds himself out as a nonpartisan actor, somebody who's trying to, to uh, be, be fair and, and, as he likes to, to, to put it, be an umpire. Um, is there a way that, that you could imagine where he might make some decisions up there where he, he can you know, lend an aura of, of fairness or at least order to this proceeding and, and, and sort of uh, you know, improve the public perception of what's going on? Well, I mean, I think really the, the best way that he does that is to involve himself uh, as little as possible. I mean, this process, uh, as, uh, as contemplated in the Constitution, uh, was, is, un- is understood to be a political process. Um, that's why the Constitution provides that a trial for impeachment occurs in the Senate and not in a court. And I think John Roberts has always been very conscious, uh, or at least tried to be conscious, 
of distinguishing between those matters that are properly legal matters about which a court can make, or at least try to make a dispassionate legal judgment, and those matters that are properly political. And, And this really is the latter. It was designed to be the latter, and as we we observe, um, it is it is a very political and politicized process, and so uh, I don't think he safeguards his own reputation or the reputation of the court if he tries to inject himself in a way that that affects the proceedings, uh, as opposed to simply presiding and 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 helping the Senate reach the conclusions that the Senate, as a collective body, uh, decides to reach. Josh, in the last uh, minute or so that we have, I want to jump to the potential impact on the Supreme Court. John Roberts heard arguments in two cases this morning uh, and then crossed the street to go to the Senate. Uh, He hears arguments in another case uh, tomorrow. Uh, How, if at all, will uh, his the double duty that he's performing right now, uh, do you think, affect the Supreme Court this term? I don't think it will affect it at all directly. Um, Indirectly, there may be some linkage. We have cases going to be argued in March concerning subpoenas that were issued. Now, these were not impeachment-related subpoenas. They were impeachments uh, uh, in the oversight and legislative context. But depending on the court resolved those subpoenas, it may either uh, support or uh, weaken a claim to obstruction of Congress. But we will get an impeachment ruling far before we get to the end of the term. Uh, Jonathan, do you uh, have that same take? Do you think there's any uh, impact on the court one way or the other from, from impeachment? I, I don't think I don't think the proceedings over the next couple of weeks necessarily have that impact. I certainly do think that that people will be watching the the cases the court has taken for later this term very closely, uh, and there is a potential uh, for uh, the court's reputation to be affected, particularly if those decisions are uh, divided and particularly contentious. John Roberts, of course, has tried to make himself the steward of the the judiciary's institutional reputation. Um, I want to thank uh, both our guests, uh, Jonathan Adler of Case Western Reserve Law School in Cleveland and Josh Blackman of South Texas College of Law. Uh, Thanks very much for joining us on Sound On. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Greg Storr. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.